Hello, everyone, and welcome back to QWERTYCAST. Uh, this is episode 27 of the QWERTYCAST podcast, the podcast for indie games, PC games, and everything in between, as we always say. I am um, honorably joined by our buddies Flix, or Dave, as you may know him. Heyo. And uh, Captain Bean Sparrow, or Steve, as you Ooh. may know him sometimes. I think your name you're better at is... keeping your... Well, what? <laughs> and your name is... You just said that you're honorably joined by. And we're honorably oh, right. joining. True. The Administrator, Island Fire, Professionally Dad, Die Dr. Dre, Dre whatever you want to call me. Young Jennifer Also Anderson. known as Andre. Yeah. <laughs> Young... T- also known as Andre. Um, so, yeah. So today, uh, we're going to continue with this trend that we've been doing where we're talking more about a theme in terms of video games and maybe even proposing a question or two to the host to have a organic roundtable discussion about things that people always talk about in these you know fields and i mean today is actually going to be a really big one that gets discussed a lot is the term roguelike and exactly how we define it and why it's an argument to begin with so i think um i was going to start off with kind of a rhetorical question on what is a roguelike because there's some really interesting history behind it to begin with um i'm sure i said begin with twice but (laughs) so the first question kind of is what is a roguelike and to know that you have to kind of break down the fact that it is what it sounds like it's a game that's like rogue well what's rogue rogue is a game from 1980 that is a text-based turn-based dungeon crawler And there's a lot of other very specific elements that make it the game Rogue. And that is pretty much where the conversation comes in. Like, how like your game, how like Rogue is your game? So, after 1980, you know, some games came out that wanted to be like Rogue. And then in 2005, there was a seven-day Rogue-like competition, kind of like an old game jam. And it still continues to this day. And it wasn't until 2008 that we actually had a group of nerds who came together to piss everybody off and actually define what roguelike means. And that has been under scrutiny for all of these years since, what, 13 years? So then I guess my first question to you guys, definitely Beans first, is what elements do you consider to be part of a roguelike? What does it make? So I, uh, in reference to the 2008, so the the group mm-hmm. of people that uh, came out and kind of threw this whole conversation into contention. Um, it took place during the Roguelike Development Conference, and uh, it's been known as the Berlin Interpretation um, since. And basically, what they said was that as long as a game incorporated the majority of a certain level of factors, then you could mm-hmm. consider it to be roguelike. And I do kind of subscribe to this to an extent. I think, mm-hmm. um, and we'll, I'm sure we're going to get into a conversation later about the variances that have spun off from just the term roguelike. Mm-hmm. But definitely, um, permadeath, cyclical gameplay. Um, the turn-based aspect is something that comes into question a lot now because that is very specific to um, true rogue-style gameplay. Um, mm-hmm. We see roguelike kind of branched out into different uh, mechanics now. Um, but, you know, 
mostly just that that permadeath cyclical gameplay is, is what I tend to look at when I first want to say, okay, this game is starting to shoot for that rogue style. And then, you know, there's there's other factors that kind of go from there. You talk about, like, the original rogue being grid-based, um, having the ASCII text. Um, you know, each time you tick one of these additional factors, you're getting closer and closer to the original. Mm-hmm. Um if, if you guys have ever heard of um, Caves of Cud, um, which was an indie game, um, I have it in my Steam library. It's like it's, Cud with a Q, right? It's with a Q, yeah. Um, what is it I called? tend to... Caves of Cud, uh, ah. Q-U-D. It's like... And it's one of many in this field, but I look mm-hmm. at that as a reference for what your modern roguelike looks like because it's trying its hardest to really bring back the nostalgia of rogue it has the ascii text um dungeon Mm -hmm. system it has the turn-based combat it's got the permadeath system so those are usually the factors that i look for when i'm when i'm talking about the rogue likes Mm -hmm. so it's interesting that you and i actually didn't know that it was pronounced ascii uh a-s-c-i-i as you may see it all in caps that is the type of um graphics it's a it's a graphic style that is basically the entire screen is made up of characters that you know you get from a keyboard. I'm gonna know if that's a good explanation of that. It is. Yeah, it's using your character library that exists uh, within your computer to generate a visual, um, you know, system. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's so some yeah. other really cool terms in all that, like you're saying permadeath. Uh, if you don't already know, permadeath is basically when you die and you lose everything. So you start from the top like fresh every single time if you play games like you know binding of isaac or enter the gungeon which of course we'll have to talk about because uh those are considered roguelikes but also not really uh so before we continue diving into that i do want to ask dave because i know that he has less investment into this genre when you hear the term roguelike what do you think uh i think about games that I restart my progress entirely Mm -hmm. um, basically every time I play through Mm -hmm. Um, I obviously I'm I'm like not too familiar on the difference between roguelike and roguelite and I kind of use them Mm -hmm. interchangeably Um, obviously this whole discussion is why that's wrong Um, so I, I don't want to speak too too far on it I I think of games like I mean it's good to know like the the like off um, the cuff yeah yeah, so I, I think of games like um, Hades or uh, mm-hmm. uh, what the fuck is the name of it? We play it all the time. It's like um, um, Risk Poe? of Rain 2. Yeah. Oh, Risk mm-hmm. of Rain 2. So like, I think of games like that um, yeah. being the, one, the main ones that I play. Um, yeah. But also, I guess like the permadeath strikes into me because of games like uh, Path of Exile, actually, where like, when I play by myself, I play uh, to not get too far into it. Solo, mm. self-found hardcore mode. <laughs> so I essentially just play it as if it is a a permadeath game. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah. I well, going back to the 2008 Berlin interpretation, they said a roguelike is specifically a game that has permadeath, random environment generation exploration and discovery so clearly there's a lot of secrets turn-based grid-based non-modal gameplay so non-modal meaning when the text comes up like an interaction it doesn't take over your whole screen uh hack and slash i.e lots of monsters to kill and resource management like your inventory and 
there's a lot of games that fall into that category, obviously, hence the, like, conversation we're having, but the original term in 2008 was defined as a game that, like, up to that point met those standards because we hadn't had more. And Spelunky came out in 2008, and that challenged the definition that they had just created. So um, I think diehards will actually say that, uh, you know, ASCII graphics, like you said, is what makes it a roguelike. Level-based, it being specifically in a dungeon, it being specifically RPG gameplay, or only one character control to control. Um, And it's just interesting to me because I feel like we're holding all of these games to like stick to a very specific set of rules instead of saying this is your starting point and that's pretty much in my opinion where the where the split happens is you either have people who are trying to say no this game is like rogue in these very high key factors so if you have what they call low key factors it's just elements of the game rogue that you can have but if you don't have it you're not not a roguelike um and I think that that's, that's something where, you know, w- with what David mentioned, you know, saying the difference between roguelike and roguelite, <laughs> the important part here is that the key term rogue hasn't disappeared from the vernacular. So, yeah. you know, and something I do want to point out, and we're going to probably discuss a lot of these key differentials, but um, for anybody who's listening... If you were to just, for the sake of pure argument, go on to Steam and look at the top 250 rogue likes, and then go to Steam and look up the top 250 rogue lights, something that you're going to notice is that uh, just the first top 10, I think nine out of the 10 games is consistent on both lists. Yeah, they so, cro- fucking cross pollinate. <laughs> <laughs> so the, the problem is that, like, yeah, us, when we talk about things to, like, these fine details and we go into that die hard descriptions, like, there are people who are going to care to that extent and it's going to be very important to them that this is kind of the differential between the game types but for the majority of players out there there are so many comparisons between these you know super niche small targeted genres mm-hmm. that uh, there actually is no difference to them so you know we'll we'll go into some of the things and actually I I'm at some point I'd like to propose I found an article where somebody actually divvies this up even more to try and define it better mm-hmm. um and we'll get there but but yeah when we talk about the roguelike roguelite a lot of differences for the people who really care not mm-hmm. a lot of differences for anybody who doesn't care <laughs> and so honestly I mean we are there let's let's talk about this so steam I looked at this last night if and Dave is going through it right now but steam has more than one it has more than two genres that you can jump into it's roguelike roguelite roguevania action roguelike and traditional roguelike uh, actually also there's deck building roguelike uh Oof, which i was so it's even crazy <laughs> yeah and it's and there's just so in what other context do we define a genre of games and i have an answer for this but in what other context do we define a genre of games based on one game that came out 40 years ago uh i mean the answer obviously is metroidvanias you know you hear other stuff like that that's what defined on two games just in the exactly metroid (laughs) and vania (laughs) both of which you haven't had like a main title release in like years so it's just interesting to me that we still continue to hold ourselves to these definitions based on a very general explanation of 
like not the first game of its type, but the first one to make itself famous. And what's really interesting is that the first roguelikes that came out were literally trying to copy Rogue because of how video games were made. If you couldn't access the game that you played once, you're just going to make your own because this was all, I don't know if you would say open source, but it was all made by hand, you know, and like people wanted to play Rogue again after 1980. So this game called Hack came out, which was literally somebody trying to make Rogue. And I'll just throw in some other traditional roguelikes that are considered definitively roguelikes. Um, Let's see. I got... Oh, shoot. I have this. Okay, here we go. So games that are specifically called roguelikes are obviously the game Rogue. Uh, NetHack, which was the game Hack, just remade again. It was built on top of the original game Hack. You have ADOM, A-D-O-M. That's an acronym. Uh, you have Ang Band, which was also, and these are all games that specifically <laughs> have that ASCII graphic display. But the first thing to move away from the ASCII graphic display, or the differences that people made in roguelike games wasn't first the graphics, because that's not what's going to evolve first. It was going to be the exploration style of the game, and even kind of breaking away from that fog of war look and if you don't know the term fog of war is like as you discover the dungeon it opens up to you and not like all being available to you all at once uh which i kind of really like as a term yeah but I like that um term. i'm a fan of that style too a lot of games that i play use that style so. right and um what's the other so one of the first couple of games that actually pulled away from that ascii graphic look is uh, the Japanese roguelikes because people in Japan want to play rogue. And out of that came, I think, a game called um, Fatal Fatal Dungeon or something like that. I'm, I know I'm terrible at remembering this right now, but the main two Japanese roguelikes that became really famous in the past are called Shirin the Wanderer and a Dragon Quest IV spinoff called Mystery Dungeon. <laughs> Do you Which guys is interesting, re- yeah. because that mystery dungeon title actually then was, you know, co-opted into a couple other series, most notably the uh, Pokemon Mystery Dungeon. Exactly, which uh, I loved as a kid, and I had I no idea that I was playing in a traditional roguelike. So is, is it um, Fatal Labyrinth, Andres? Fatal, Fatal Labyrinth, Labyrinth, thank you. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and, you know, somebody, it was also Crawl, and I was crawl. like, wait, yeah, like crawl the game Crawl? Great. But it's Lindley's Dungeon Crawl. It's an old ASCII graphic roguelike. Yeah. And I'd be um, doing a disservice to uh, some of uh, our friends from um, the Diet Group if I didn't mention um, Dungeon Crawl Stone Soup, which yeah. is like um, a still played game today that's very much in that like hardcore roguelike category. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So then the split actually came to roguelike-like before it came to roguelite. Yeah. And, um, I mean, and that's do you want to speak debated. to that? Well, yeah, so I was going to say, that's that's a, the um, derivative that I've seen thrown around that is really kind of, like, held in contention. Mm-hmm. Because the roguelike-likes, I think that terminology really started when people tried to define games like Spelunky, um, which was really, you know, competing with this Berlin interpretation. You also see games like FTL, um, Binding 
binding of Isaac. Mm-hmm. So I think what ends up happening with Roguelike Lake, and, and you can kind of chime in on this, but essentially it's if you can check the majority of the boxes, but you're missing a few key aspects, we still consider you to be attempting to build a rogue, um, but it's not... It's not as true as a roguelike anymore. So now we've we've gone one you know degree further away. So mm-hmm. the roguelike like is going to have most of those um, key elements, but it's going to be missing something specifically the visual um, and maybe even the turn based combat system, depending upon how the game is being implemented and its mechanics. But those are when you'll really see the, the major differences um, when you switch out to the roguelike like. We kind of separate ourselves one degree further. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and it seemed like a lot of... It's funny that you go for graphics first because you're the one that I saw in that conversation post the competing article, the one that's really famous. I can't remember the guy's name, but he talks about how the Berlin interpretation is trash. And he <laughs> mostly notes that the ASCII graphics cannot hold that like um, that genre in place like that because there are games like the Mystery Dungeon games that pushed away from the ASCII graphics super early on, and they've always been considered a roguelike if you look at the Wikipedia entry for roguelike games. Yeah. Um, and, uh... Da, da, da. No, Which I'm we know lie. from uh, all schooling that Wikipedia is the most reliable source for information <laughs> all the time. <laughs> all the fucking time. That's why, you know, uh, yeah. D- despite that um, stigma, it tends to be, at least for the general purpose, uh, pretty decent yeah. uh, collection. Yeah, until you get trolls who wipe out entire languages <laughs> based oh, on man. just funsies. Damn it, I know exactly what you're talking about. I think it was like an old Gaelic language, right? Or Scottish yep. language. Yeah, oh, it was man. It was a traditional language, and all of the history of it was wiped out because somebody just decided to fuck with it. Anyway. Because it sounded funny. Tangent. But yeah, so, so okay, kind of yeah. building on what you're saying. So like, mm-hmm. I, I mentioned Binding of Isaac specifically because this is something that's been really, really discussed, and I'm not sure if you guys have ever had a chance to play it. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, play I a lot of it. describe it as kind of like a bullet hell roguelike uh, mm-hmm. because of the gameplay mechanic. But like here's a the imp- twin stick shooter. Is what yeah, twin say. stick shooter. Yeah. Um, but here's the important part about Binding of Isaac, which makes it such a fascinating case. For the majority of the Berlin interpretation, it actually checks almost all of the boxes it's got your top-down view mm-hmm. it's got your procedurally generated levels it's got your dungeon-based exploration it's you got your tile movement system permadeath mm-hmm. item collection inventory resource management yeah um hack, hack and slash, slash style combat yeah. so for all intents and purposes if you look at this game based on the way that we've been defining in the past it mm-hmm. is a rogue like and yet the community as a whole and the, the biggest enthusiasts of this whole competition of discussion look at binding of isaac and just purely based on the way that it looks immediately discredit it as being a rogue like and drop it down to that lake lake status and and that's something that's really tough because if you're going to say here's what we define and then you see something that looks completely different than what you were anticipating based on that definition mm-hmm. but still hits the mark you know where do you go from there <laughs> so that's I, where I we even get heard something different i heard that it wasn't about the graphics it was about the fact that it wasn't turn-based yeah, which I'm because sure is also because I think those are really just the two factors that kind mm-hmm. of just take it away from that interpretation. Yeah, the turn yeah. base being the other one, but yeah, I mean, it's, which is it's like just then why crazy. is FTL not a roguelike because that <laughs> is turn based? But then you also have like three different game modes, including modal like dialogue, which mm. apparently is not part of a roguelike. So it's yeah, it's as you 
get further and further down the line of creating these different video games, obviously the whole point is that you want to make a spin on something. If mm -hmm. you're doing a game jam like the seven day roguelike competition, then you want to make a game as much as roguelike as possible and it also have like your spin on it, your 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 specific whatever. Um, but if you're making a game after years and you're trying to make something that lasts and that like, you know, comes out and people are talking about it, then you're going to take a known genre and you're gonna put a twist. Like what's that roguelike game that just came out that has that shopkeeper um, mechanic to it? I know that we've talked about it. It didn't a few times. just come out, but you're talking about Moonlighter. Yes, thank you. <laughs> but just like in general, like, well, yeah, right. It didn't just come out. But in general, a lot of games, like I mentioned, uh, card deck building roguelikes. Like there's all there's now so many Slay different tack ons. Yeah. But why are we still calling it like rogue and not other genres? You know, like, um, uh, well, well, OK, my favorite term that I actually read was uh, procedural death labyrinth. Procedural that death that is a term that a group of people want to start replacing roguelike with hmm. um because you know it's not defining it by an old style of game it's just defining it by the way that you play it mm -hmm. uh, and there's a lot of different i'm gonna pull up a list of a lot of different other uh possible ideas that we could say call a roguelike yeah. um but i guess my next question will be should Bef genres well what go for it before um you get onto that i wanted to bring up the link that you sent me that i pulled up for um for those who yes. aren't watching our video um i don't know if you've mentioned this yet oh beans you'll love uh, this we we do a video version of this podcast it's for our patreon subscribers you can find it by going to qwertycast.com um <laughs> And right now we have bp.io slash how roguelike. And uh, you can check off as many boxes as you want. You've got ASCII. Most events are narrated. All user actions are available from the start. Keyboard only. Random environments. Minimum story. Has a dungeon. Grid-based world. Permadeath. Turn-based. Tactical. Hacking and slashing. Player attributes are shown. And finally, a checkbox called Named Rogue. And actually, if you check all of them off except for that last one, it's a, it's a roguelike. If you check off that last one, it just says, your game is rogue. Your game is rogue. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> Literally. Like, you're not like, nobody's making rogue anymore. Yeah. And you'd have to be set by like, such constricting standards in order to. Yeah. And you um, know, I'm curious because, and just to kind of tie into that last part of our conversation where we were defining the different varieties of... <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I almost jumped away from that, but I'm not even done. <laughs> so, so real quick. So using this system, so if you are able to watch, uh, take a look. If you were to uncheck minimum story and uncheck permadeath, I'm just curious what it would take away. Nothing. Yet. So so um, interestingly, it still lists this as a roguelike. So it looks like it's it's tied to how many things you have. So once you check, uncheck four of the things other than named rogue, then it goes mm -hmm. to rogue like like. Once you uncheck, I believe it's six. Oh nope, seven. Then it's a rogue like like like, and then um, that's nine, ten. Once you uncheck ten, of oh, them, it just goes then down it's the a rogue line. Like, okay. like 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 like. So, so, so the one thing that I wanted to point out is the, the, that variety that we talked about in the beginning where we say light, L-I-T-E. Yes. Um, the biggest components that I see online as far as like um, what would define that specifically is you can have any of these checked except 
permadeath and minimum story. It seems to be a generalized consensus that if you have a game that exhibits the majority of the um, standards for a roguelike except permadeath and it has an actual story, there is an actual end, that's mm -hmm. when we start to consider it to be in the realm of roguelite. And so you see games, especially um, I think most of us here have been really enjoying Hades. Uh, mm -hmm. Hades has a really, really rich, deep story there is actually an ending to it, if you get there. Um, and there is no permadeath because there is a carryover aspect. There's a persistence to the gameplay where each time you're going through, there's something that you actually manage to continue to bring with you and upgrade as you go. And so the roguelike-like-like-like-like-like method has then these branch-offs. And so you can actually define it as a roguelite, typically, if you have all of these with the exception of the permadeath and the story. And that makes um, sense to me. Yeah. So as people have defined it, the light kind of resembles a, an easier version of a roguelike. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, like a whatever, light beer. Um, which I don't really love because you're basically saying like, oh, you couldn't handle the challenge of a roguelike, so you wanted something easier. Because like the first game to define a roguelite was Rogue Legacy, which do we even have to fucking get into why did they call it that? Because oh, it's yeah, not please. a roguelike. It's um it's a it's a Metroidvania that has rogue elements. So that's um, but rogue Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say that Rogue Light, as Steve said, is very much um mostly defined by the fact that it is carryover progress. Mm -hmm. And that you have something happening between each run. Like with Rogue Legacy, it's hilarious every character you play is actually a descendant of the last character you let die. And so uh, they will continue, depending on who you pick, they will continue to get, like, the random diseases or, like, attributes that that older generation had. And you're continuing to travel through this dungeon, which, you know, classic roguelike dungeon crawler. Um, not necessarily top-down, but you can see how, like, the legacy of it is just... You know, there is this old game that we all love, and we're just going to continue to build off of its legacy. Um, and yeah, so a rogue light is definitely one of those definitions that we're all just kind of battling over. I didn't even hear rogue, <laughs> roguevania, which is basically what this is, and that's what Steam <laughs> defines it as. Yeah. Um. Um. Yeah. Go for it. So what I was going to say is the the one on that website that stuck out the most to me was uh having all abilities unlocked from the start because most games mm -hmm. that i play in like what still have the tag of rogue like l-i-k-e instead of rogue light l-i-t-e mm -hmm. um do not have everything unlocked from the beginning um hades is one of them that because that mm -hmm. doesn't just have the expansive story and the no permadeath it also has that aspect of as you progress through it you unlock more abilities um, mm -hmm. And most games that I play that are considered rogue-like, um, at least by tag on Steam, um, do have that Metroidvania aspect of like not everything. Like you revisit areas, or like there are certain abilities that you have that you didn't have before. Essentially, mm. yeah, so, there's like so, a progression yeah. aspect to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which I actually prefer those games um, because the progression, I think, is what helps me um, go back and continue continue grinding through something is because I know, yeah. like, mm -hmm. oh, my progress doesn't fully reset every time I start. Yeah, and this goes to, to Andre's thing where we talk about, like, 
you know, when we use the word light and we say easier, there's almost like this negative connotation associated with that. And I think that that's, we kind of have to disassociate ourselves with that because what mm-hmm. it really is, is it's, it's a totally different game type that appeals to different players. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if, if you're a person who likes the true definition of a roguelike and you're sitting there and saying, oh, these rogue lights are too easy, that's because they're not for you. You know, that you, you want to stick with that hardcore gameplay. Not everybody wants to do that. And so it's, mm. it's like saying rogue light is not in any way a disparity against the game itself. It's not saying that this is lesser because of it. It's a totally different game. And, and also- it's better for it. Yeah, and that that totally gets into a whole different conversation that we could have of like the mm. stigma against like easy mode in games and stuff like that. Where like get good. That's, tune into episode twenty seven. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I could I but, could yeah. talk about that a, a lot. Like mm-hmm. just just in general of the way that it's presented, and the, like the way that um, like a lot of games will call like easy mode, like baby mode, etc. Blah 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 again could be a totally different episode on how we rate games yeah. Um, yeah and i mean like we and we know that like people don't care because we also have genres known as couch co-ops you know and we yeah. have like things that are specifically made for you to be able to chill but still have a challenge and i stardew valley isn't not challenging you know uh did i say that right whatever but you get what i'm saying like yeah. there's games that you can really relax with that will still really put you to the test mm-hmm. um and it's i think what's really interesting is that exactly <laughs> different keystrokes different. Uh, <laughs> I, I i didn't listen you're the one that had to clarify it I, <laughs> <laughs> um i uh what was i gonna say it's interesting because you'd think that the rogue light genre would be more well not even think i feel like it caters better to uh story because Mm -hmm. even even a game like binding of isaac or enter the gungeon have story but that story feels very like hidden and you Mm -hmm. have to it's part of that exploration uh, like style is that you're looking for these elements of story and games like that have done that so well like the story is so hidden that it's this very complex meta that you would have to do research to find out and hidden characters that like are not obvious to figure out versus a game like rogue legacy that has carryover where you know that like oh I feel kind of connected to my character because I know that I've been playing this family for generations. Or and he has ADHD like me. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> or like, uh, or um, fucking blindness where you just yeah. like can't even see around you. Yeah. Or or Hades. Uh, like it's so different from when forty years ago. Forty years ago when Rogue came out, and it could not focus as much on building a story, and it could not focus as much on like. I mean, it just didn't have the, it's not, it wasn't worried about that. It was worried about creating a game that was similar to the text-based adventures that you already knew about and just making it the best one of its kind. So I feel like there's no way around pushing further and further from this. So I guess the next question is, do we need to have this argument as like, (laughs) as a society? Um... Like, why Why does this argument matter? Why do people care so much? People care because, and I could speak very plainly on this, because they're particular and assholes. And I am <laughs> one of them. I'm a very particular asshole. 
<laughs> so I love uh, like it's it's a semantics thing, right? And and mm-hmm. there's always going to be someone who's like, uh, you can't use like this term because actually it's this thing. Like there's always those people. I'm that way about almost everything that I do. So I totally <laughs> get it. But also those people suck. So. Yeah. Well, and and I will I will add like a, a counterpoint to this. So although I mm-hmm. agree wholeheartedly with how Dave described that, um, having this um, particularity in in the way that we define things also affects the developers. And mm-hmm. so because of the fact that this is held in such contention, because it's very popular right now to have this discussion, I think it's also a motivation for your developers to try and inject some type of originality into it in order to make this discussion even more difficult. Mm-hmm. And so you know it's it's. One of those things where, yes, in the grand scheme of things, they're all fantastic video games, and that's the only umbrella that we really need to kind of consider. But because of this whole competition in what defines me and what defines my game, uh, we get to see this really well-rounded, you know, scope of games and and mechanics. And every you know six months, we're going to get something brand spanking new that we've never even considered. And now mm-hmm. the whole conversation starts over. So it's it's good. You know, we we get heated and we and we want to define things our way and we're particular assholes. But in the end, we're going to get a better product and everyone's going to be really, really happy about it. So it's good. We, I mean, we just like to, as people, we like to categorize things, right? Um, so, I mean, that's that's really what it comes down to is, yeah. is we just want to have a way to easily define what we're doing. But then at the same time, we also want to like break those boundaries all the time. So it's just like... Mm-hmm you know yeah you you want to define it but you also want to redefine it constantly mm-hmm. and it's, it's just like a really interesting um like back and forth hey it's organic uh, video games are suffering from an identity crisis like the rest of us so don't worry mm-hmm. about it <laughs> and honestly speaking kind of to what you were just saying about like um uh it, it being for the game developers if we think about it too, when you define your game as a roguelike, that's the tag that you're putting on it in Steam. You know, you're going to click that tag and you're looking for those specific types of games. But look at Steam. It doesn't even have roguelite as an option or roguelike like rather. It doesn't have roguelike like as an option, which people have specifically called a lot of games that. Mm-hmm. It has all these different action roguelike, traditional roguelike. Look at Epic. Epic Store, I looked at it last night. Maybe it was only the web client. But it only had Rogue Light. And then I opened Xbox. It has none of these. Mm-hmm. So when you're developing a game and you put this tag on it and it's so heavily contested, then what if your game doesn't even get seen at all because it's the only tag that you've given to it? And like, how do you have your game searchable online? It makes it harder for your game to be literally defined by these databases that organize like game lists you know or most anticipated games of 2021 is this the roguelike that's most anticipated or is it the rpg or is it the metroidvania that's most anticipated you know and a lot of people will tag their games as a roguelike in order for it to get attention think about Mm -hmm. how we do that with our twitter posts like i'll always post twitch affiliate or indie games indie game podcast there's like a million types of all of those things. So you searching for that tag doesn't necessarily tell you anything about our podcast. So we're, and the same we're thing part with of the roguelike. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and the same thing happens in music. I know we keep, like, I keep talking about it, but when Spotify did the wrapped, we all came up with these random ass genres. Yeah, and it was great, but also 
are you ever going to click on that genre? Well, I mean, yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, I like the breakdown, actually. <laughs> I think the breakdown helps it because it makes it more fun to be like, okay, I know this very specific breakdown means a very specific set of rules, and that's what I'm looking for. But it takes longer for plat- platforms like Steam to have that definition set in their search results. And, you know, it's <laughs> jo- all like... Join us for episode 28 where we talk about big data analytics and hacking human say... psychology. <laughs> oh, my God. Like yeah, artists it... versus databases. But it's it's true. So, so just to very briefly touch on it, it mm-hmm. because of the way that we filter nowadays. So, um, unfortunately, the whole aspect of, like, getting your game out there, the whole word of mouth that used to be is no longer. Now it's word of directory. And mm. so, you know, because of the fact that we've defined these things and, and we have this discussion about definition, it truly does determine what market you're going to get. And so that is kind of a, a detractor from this because of the fact that anybody who would normally traditionally name their game a roguelike, like, 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 is now going to just simply choose roguelike in order to make sure that their game is going to reach the market that they want to reach. And I think and that may actually international too. Yeah, and that may be contributing to this whole discussion because we're seeing games that have a roguelike tab, but mm-hmm. or a tag. Um, but then you know the community as a whole is like, that's not a roguelike. That's a roguelike, like, like. You but, know, and yeah. <laughs> but doesn't that, to some degree, isn't that like a misleading type of thing? Like I, I totally get like the separation of roguelike and roguelite because of the very specific things that it changes. But like tagging mm. Hades as a roguelike, like doesn't that kind of muddle your message as a developer? And also like, I mean, fortunately it's a great fucking game, but mm-hmm. it could have just as easily been a flop and you could have had, you know, thousands upon thousands of review bombs saying this was tagged as a roguelike, it's a roguelite, fuck you, you suck this game's awful because it's not what I wanted it to be. And like when people mm. are looking for a very specific type of game, you know, and then you go over here and you're like dead cells, dead cells is a Metroidvania with, with like all some rogue, rogue elements, light, right? El- yeah. Some rogue elements to it. Um, I know because I've played it and I fucking hate that game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, Slave Aspire on that list is, is actually a card game. It's a deck exactly. game. Um, but it doesn't play that way. And so, yeah. So, yeah, I get what you're saying where, like, it'll definitely contribute to the um, community's willingness to shit on a game. <laughs> well, and, and it also, it makes it harder for me to find the game that I want to play. I mean, we you can't, I guess you can't talk about oversaturation and then separate out the fact that we're simplifying genres to capture a wider art audience. Because is there as much oversaturation as we think? Or is it just because we are... A, sticking to these like older definitions and refusing to redefine genres, and B, then taking this older definition and just throwing everything into it, even if it like it's a smaller square than the circle, so it technically fits, but it's not a circle. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the conversation about defining roguelikes is happening so much slower than the actual development of roguelikes. People are, like you just said, they're making them every single year. And I'm going to touch base on that even a little more soon, but they're making roguelikes every single year, and they just continue to push the boundaries of what that means. Meanwhile, what, we have one conversation in 2008 that defines the genre, and, like, we haven't had another Berlin interpretation since. 
It's just yeah. yeah the the converse the definitions of things is just so bureaucratic. It's going to move so much slower than the actual presentation of these things. And it also makes you feel like an insider because it took me hours of reading to understand why the fuck this conversation happens in the first place. But yeah, does this conversation need to be had? What is what do you guys want the end of this conversation this episode to come to? Uh, I've already taken away a lot from it because it's given me a clearer definition between roguelike and roguelite. And I've now learned mm-hmm. that I actually like roguelites and I don't like roguelikes as much. <laughs> um, mm. But uh, aside from that, when you get into these nuances of roguelike, roguelike, like, roguelike, like, like, and then mm-hmm. boiling it down to just, well, just throw them all into roguelike, there, there should be... Um, Initially, when you said uh, the procedural death labyrinth um, as a new genre, I thought that's like a mouthful, right? Um, Mm. But it does, at the very least, kind of define what the game is more so than just saying it's a roguelike. Because, one, a lot of people, myself included, didn't know that roguelike, even though it's in the name, like I didn't know that roguelike was because it is like the game Rogue, which Mm -hmm. is a game that I've never played in my life. Um, also so, click on that never say roguelike by Tanya X short that was one of my favorite articles I read uh, uh, yes. it's further reading mm-hmm. yeah and so if you scroll down to the bottom of this article you'll see that she actually proposes <laughs> that we stop defining these games by it being like a specific type of game and we actually define it more by the characteristics so she said uh, just an example maybe we should call things like this mastery games a game's about learning a particular skill extremely well you know there's um improvisational games uh mystery games like mystery dungeon games um uncompromising which you know a lot of people think about don't starve when you think of uncompromising games but i always thought of roguelikes as uncompromising you know you feel like you build so much and you get so excited about your build and then it's just wiped and but you know that you can get back to that and I can appreciate the the thought process behind trying to drive a new way of having this conversation. But mm-hmm. just as like a counterpoint to this and something that I do think is important, and it also kind of answers your question about, you know, what do we want to get out of this in the end and why is this mm-hmm. conversation necessary in the first place? The reason why we associate game models with successful games is because it's an easy way for us to interpret immediately whether or not we have interest because that's really what it comes down to is if I say Mm -hmm. my game is a roguelike and I liked rogue, then that means that there is a very good chance that my interests will align with what this game actually is. And so I'm going to go ahead and try it. And so I don't know if I would subscribe to the conversation of trying to redefine these names because then it just it, it abstracts the values that I'm interested in. And so what it really is, so the you want to look at it and I kind of go back to like the sports thing where you look at the like tree of influence when you have a coach who taught these six coaches who went on to become head coaches who taught these 10 coaches. Mm-hmm. You know, we look at Rogue as being the the top end of this tree and it's then inspired the all of these games and then they've inspired all of these games. And so for me the fastest way for me to determine whether or not I'm going to enjoy something and I actually give it a try is to see the, the, the tree connection of how this game compares to the games that inspired it, to the games mm-hmm. that inspired those. And that's going to make me very quickly determine if I'm going to sink 20 minutes into giving this some type of impression. You know, so I think that... And that's not even quickly. 
Well, let's yeah. Let's be honest. Like, but you're you doing know research what you like. in order to know. Yeah, but people don't even know what Rogue is. And that's so it's true. Like you have this very, like, good structure of what you're looking for. Meanwhile, people click on Roguelike, and they don't know about the game Rogue. Right, I mean, you know, that's so they're not actually basing it off of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it so there's a value to Because both. they like Hades, or they click on Roguelike exactly. because they liked Spelunky. Especially now. It's yeah, especially, absolutely going to yeah. be about Hades and, like... Yeah, so there's going to be Hades likes, and, mm-hmm. and I think but that that's, that's fine. But that's never going to be a genre name, you know? <laughs> no. like, um, but it'll be a conversation piece. Exactly, because there are games that are considered doom likes i think if you go to which well, is really duke nukem which is really serious <laughs> sam which is which is really a, wolfenstein yeah, well yeah <laughs> <laughs> so it's just like yeah it's crazy and, and 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 you know we as a as a group that is trying to connect with people are probably going to define our own genres because we don't agree at some point because i i, I got through some articles that were a group of people who said oh we defined this or we defined that um and and yeah people are going to continue to redefine their game genres i don't know it's it's so exciting what... but it's also just it's so disconnected from the original point that i i kind of am of the mindset that it should be describing more like what you're doing in the game rather than relating it to rogue i think that we should just like let rogue like stop <laughs> and just like move forward with other shit that's because so, there's so yeah. interesting because that was like the same way that i felt right was like i actually when you told me to click on this and like the stop saying roguelike article um and it went down to this this was organically in my mind how i was going to answer your question already like that's the conclusion mm-hmm. that i already came to is like because when i click on roguelike and i see you know hades curse of the dead gods risk of rain 2 the binding of the binding of isaac um, and then, like, I start seeing Luck be a landlord. I have no idea what this game is. It might be a roguelike, really or it might not be a roguelike. I have no idea. And that's that's where all of a sudden it's like, well, I don't know if I'm going to have interest in this because mm. I've played For the King. I don't like it. Um, and and sequels are usually trying to build off of their original game and not trying to build off of the impressions that you get from rogue so like rogue Le- or not rogue legacy risk of rain 2 specifically is ri- like risk of rain 1 is a 2d i mean kind of a platformer but it is 2d and the whole point of risk of rain 2 3 2 god damn is just like this is the game that you loved but in 3d right. so risk of rain 2 the risk of rain like yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> yes and I mean, this is going to go into my uh, news, but I'm going to talk about the, you know, the sequels of the games that have contested the roguelike genre, because yeah, now think, even those are just like building off of themselves. They're like, like, likes. It's, it's for me, the, the ultimate, like where we should be going and, and, and what I'd like to see. Mm-hmm. If you're a developer like, like. and you're listening to our podcast, which by the way, if that's the case, please reach out to us. We want to talk about your game, but Hell yeah. Um, what Especially we want really is we want very good descriptions and we want a demo. <laughs> Give us a demo. Demos uh. <laughs> are your key to determining what your game base is really going to look like. And it's a it's a straight shot to financial freedom. Best Give thing us these demos. These virtual Steam Games Festivals <laughs> has been the, yeah. like, the resources of the so demo. We played so many. Oh, yeah. I, I think I pre-ordered... 10 games from that festival because I got a chance to actually play and really figure out what it is that I liked from the games that were available. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the off chance that we actually managed to make some type of change to the industry, QWERTYCAST says, 
Release a demo with your game, please. <laughs> well, then that used to be a thing. I'm down though, for that. You know, think about the Xbox 360. Actually, is what I always think about. The demos were like the biggest thing. I mean, you could download demos for basically any game that was out on the 360. They had a demo for it. And developers mm. moved away from it because they felt as though it discouraged people from buying it. I'm of the mindset that it maybe there's like some people that won't buy it, but like you're losing, you're probably losing more sales by not giving people the chance to try it before purchasing. Because mm -hmm. now the only thing they have to go off of is a is a review of the game. It, it was or all watching about, gameplay like, footage on YouTube. Yeah, and it was all about <laughs> yeah. controlling the conversation, I think, and and trying mm -hmm. to just convince people. Well, you don't know if you're going to like this game or not, so give us sixty bucks. <laughs> and yeah. and I don't like that oh, as a God. strategy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I think I'm not here to define it, but I am here to enjoy the conversation about why people get so into it. And it was kind of really fun learning about this. It's a great genre, and that's why this yeah. conversation is so important. So definitely, exactly. if you've never given it a try, test it out, define it for yourself, find the games that you like. Um, mm -hmm. but it's, it's it is a really good collection of games. Find the exactly. games that you it's like, a... but understand that they may not be roguelikes, and that's okay. <laughs> roguelikes are, yes. in essence, a game that you can pick up and put down very easily. You know, you. Uh, I honestly think roguelikes are going to continue to blow up, especially now, uh, like when everyone is getting more into video games because of quarantine and they recognize that it's not like a kid's platform, which I always hate that kind of conversation. Same thing happens with animation. But I saw a beautiful love letter to roguelikes written and posted from NPR, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's a lot of resources for the non-video game player to get into these games and i think roguelikes are a perfect introduction for a lot of non-video game players because it is a game that you can pick up play a loop of for like 10 minutes and then put down and continue your work you know so yeah. um I, yeah i'm excited to just continue to see more roguelikes and probably just look at the other tags it has attached to it yeah i think that's as, the most yeah. important thing is like just just be mindful that not all roguelikes are the roguelike that mm -hmm. you might like like <laughs> um like like yeah and like, like and i guess for me the the big thing is um like comparing it to the tag indie okay well an indie game mm -hmm. could be literally anything literally, literally anything now anything yeah. so did i tell you guys how i was i was reading uh a post from edward mcmullen who's the creator of binding of isaac and somebody was like how do you want the genre of indie games to go and he was like away because <laughs> <laughs> because indie and i mean like i sort of agree with him to 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 an extent that when you have this definition for for something that is just now completely all-encompassing and we're always also trying to figure out wait is this indie or is it double a or is it triple a like the money that's going into it but also we're all trying to get that fucking money so it's like why would we shame a game for making good money or getting a good partner, you know? So, um, yeah, I think it's just, it's not about one term anymore. It's about the different uh, terms that you apply to and whatever that's, you're talking about. And that's why we it's talk complex. about indie games, PC games, and everything in, everything between, in between is because we love them all. Yep. So, moving on. 
to news. I was going to talk about just actually more a little bit about roguelikes. So some of the one of the most um, anticipated roguelikes of 2021 that was popping up on a lot of people's lists was this game called 30XX. So this is a sequel to the game uh, by Battery Staple 20XX, which is a Mega Man love letter that is also full of roguelike elements and it's a co-op oh. and i know that yeah i know that co-ops are also kind of something that cuts you off from being a roguelike usually but it was a really popular game that came out i think in 2018 so 30xx has been a you know a hotly uh weighted on game i'm so good with verbs and um, this game like just released into early access huh uh-huh in february yeah uh, another game that came out in February is called Tunch or Tunche. I think uh, spell that for T U T U N C H E. I think you can just search in Steam. Yeah, right? I probably should have just done that. Oh well. <laughs> um, but this game also, or maybe did it already come out? Scroll down. I think it came. Nah, out. spring of oh, twenty twenty one. So this is all hand drawn style. So obviously, there's a lot of games that are getting popularized for hand-drawn um, because of, not because of, but we know that Cuphead gave a huge resurgence or, like, huge popularity to let's bring this hand-drawn um, yeah, I mean, this rubber is a hose animation into things. Is what you're saying. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Except with rogue elements. Right. And, um, and, you know, a diverse set of characters. It looks like it's, uh, like, starring a bunch of indigenous characters in this really cool world. Yeah. And on top of that, we could even talk about some of the games that define the genres that have now since had sequels. So Spelunky has a sequel that came out last year, Spelunky 2. Oh, you know what just came out? I think it was Rogue Legacy 2. <laughs> really? Rogue, yeah, which I was talking to Walker about. And Rogue Legacy 2, um, built, on, off of, built off of Rogue Legacy, and now it has like more classes ah yes so All instead of just being of like the warrior class with the sword you can be like a lancer class you can be a wizard um which also class expansion was an element of original roguelikes before that genre started splitting off so it's it's interesting where we're pulling uh the definition from uh binding of isaac like i mentioned in a previous episode has a new expansion it is part of a it was fan-made dlc that edward mcmullen basically pulled into the real canon asked those devs to help him create this new expansion the last expansion of binding of isaac and it is coming out in march i believe so we're really close to that uh it's it's really awesome to see like the games that started this whole thing continuing their own worlds and continuing to develop what it is to be a roguelike uh lastly that seven day roguelike uh development competition happens every year in the beginning of march so the next one's actually going to start in march 6th and by the time this episode is posted it'll probably be happening or almost over uh 7drl uh. if you want to check out 7drl.com uh, but this is the upcoming 2021 challenge, March 6th to March 14th. So if you want to see games that are considered traditional roguelikes because of maybe the graphic 
good graphic style and just all of those other high value factors check that out even though the website isn't super strict on what it defines as a roguelike it just talks about that being a conversation that people have uh yeah it's there's a a lot of roguelikes coming out i'm happy to talk about more or if anyone listening or you i'm guys really interested in the to, um in the 30 so the only reason that i'm familiar with that in the first place mm-hmm. was actually because of um the huge commercial failure of mighty number no. nine um well that's so been mighty, mighty commercial nine. failure <laughs> so mighty mighty number no. nine was a kickstarter <laughs> game that was supposed to be the nostalgia fest for Mega Man's um legacy and um and i think it's in my library uh, i played okay. it once it's not good uh, i got so it very I could, cheap I could be off on some of this details, so feel free to correct me or just take this with a grain of salt. But I know they started their Kickstarter somewhere in like 2015. It ended up delivering extremely like poorly and much less than what the anticipation, what the hype kind of like set players up for. But um, one of the things mm. about it was um, because of its failure. I'm pretty sure 20XX got a huge jump in its market share um, because all the players who were looking to Mighty mm. Number no. Nine to fill that void uh, slid over to 20XX instead. Um, but yeah, I just know that uh, I didn't even pick up Mighty Number no. Nine. I had it originally in my wish list and I was waiting for it. And then just based on everything I heard about it, I just said, you know what? I don't know if it's even worth it at this point, and so I skipped it. So I'm interested in the 30XX because mm-hmm. if it is going to give you that kind of like Mega Man feel, um, then I'm going to have to take a look. So uh, I, I'm yeah, trying to read absolutely. into this really quick. I am trying to see, because mm-hmm. this was... And next will th- be was, you with the was news. This, um, <laughs> I can't remember. Was this one of the games that kind of defined the the remaking of genres of games by their original creators or was this one just a completely separate like love letter one um because i know that uh what was it the castlevania creator created a uh, another game that was supposed to be basically castlevania but uh like you know they stepped away from mm-hmm. the franchise itself and just wanted to go back to what they loved about the game and bring it in and i just can't remember if my number nine was one of those in that trend of oh, that's a good point. of original creators mm-hmm. who then just mucked it up by running it through Kickstarter. Yeah, so I think the original writer for the game, and I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, but uh, Keiji Inafune. Um, so I think he actually was an illustrator for the original Mega Man series. Okay, yeah. And um, because mm-hmm. of that work, he then wrote out um, part of or or started the concept of Mighty Number no. Nine. Okay. So it was kind of one of those things where he was just trying to bring that nostalgia back. I don't know how much of uh, influence he had outside of he's just credited as writer for Mighty Number no. Nine, but that was kind of like what started mm-hmm. it, and it ended up just being a total bomb. Yeah, and okay, so the, I I am kind of on the right track. It was that whole yeah. idea of these games were tied to some of the original creators or producers or developers um in in some way and they were like flops for various reasons i know a big thing with mighty number nine was the technical flop of it like the game just stutters Mm. like nobody's business it was like you took someone who had no experience making games and were like make mega man like current day mega man but 
completely different names and everything. And then also like, mm-hmm. we don't want to give you any money to make it. Um, so it was, I, I don't yeah. know. It, it was like a kind of very uh, stitched together type of game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'll check out 30XX. I see. Yeah. I actually <laughs> want to check it out too, even though nice. I'm not a huge fan of the um, series. Yeah, I I could take it or leave it. Uh, so, Dave, continuing. Sure. So, um, for those who for have been today? watching the video podcast, um, every now and then you'll see on my screen something pops up, and it'll just be like, hey, this game's on sale. Um, and it'll give me like a little tooltip. I wish I could find one of the games that it... Oh, here's one. My number nine. Um, oh, yeah, nice. So, I didn't actually notice um, that. If I click that, it'll actually take me to the website eventually uh fanatical which is a website that we've talked about before when we've highlighted game deals um they are a 100 percent official keys only retailer for digital keys on of various video games um they usually do like a a daily mm. or uh maybe weekly i can't remember uh oh yeah it's it's a daily um, star deal, which like will highlight one thing. Right now, they've got as that time of recording, they've got Sleeping Dogs, and they'll do like a huge discount. So like, it's normally twenty bucks. They're they're selling mm. it for two dollars and seventy five cents. They also focus really heavily on bundles. Um, but the news isn't about the site itself and what they sell. It's about the fact that they have now joined Fandom. Fandom, for those of you who don't know, used to be known as Wikia. It is a community for people to share a bunch of information. I actually did a little bit of research on it, um, not nearly as much as Andres did for roguelikes. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I guess Wikipedia has like very constrictive um, like sets of rules for what you can and cannot put on there. Whereas the fandom pages, mm-hmm. um, again, formerly Wikias, um, can go deep, deep into every little single category of a single topic. And a lot of like video games have fandom pages, a Mm -hmm. lot of um, like fiction series, uh, television, movie, et cetera, all Mm -hmm. have fandom pages. I needed the, I needed the Gungeon, enter the Gungeon fandom wiki in order to like, like understand the things I was doing in that game. Yeah, it's, it's very, um, like they're they're some of the greatest resources. I think I use um, the the equivalent of a fandom page if it's not a fandom for Path of Exile. A lot of times, mm-hmm. um, where I'll just like when I want to look up what something is, it'll uh, that'll be like one of the main things mm-hmm. that I do. I'm trying to without searching for it, but I think I'm just gonna have to search for it. Um, is the mm. the FAQ fanatical of it. blog. Um, You said Fanatical was bought out by Fandom or joined with is the name of it. Um, Fandom, right? And they actually have a blog post about it with a little FAQ. Um, the mm. important things to note are that they're not um, really changing anything about themselves, uh, but they will be able to now access mm-hmm. and advertise on Fandom more easily, which will um, hopefully boost Fanatical, which I still think is probably one of the greatest resources if you want to get like cheaper games um 
there's actually right now mm-hmm. one of the bundles that they have uh, again at time of recording has one of the games that we talked about moonlighter on it um and it is an unbelievably great resource here it is the guardian bundle and for <laughs> let's just hmm. to um list out the types of things that they do they they do tiered bundles they're they're very much like mm-hmm. uh a humble mm. bundle type of humble service um but with it reminds me of a mix of humble and epic but then i think wait did those two um, just get it i think from this? they i feel as though maybe fanatical was influenced by humble um but epic probably mm. was influenced by both in some way I mean, if you look, they've got the tiers. Pay one dollar, you get these three different games: um, Tesla versus Lovecraft, mm-hmm. um, Out of the Box, Rec Center Tycoon. You pay four dollars, all of a sudden you get those games plus six more. Oh yeah, this is. So and then humble. if you pay seven dollars, capital H, you get all of those previous games, uh, and in this case, two more. Um, and these games, I mean, do actually retail for like 20 bucks, 30 bucks sometimes. And then you can get them for, mm-hmm. you know, pennies. I mean, this is $7 plus tax and you get, what was it? Like uh, six, nine, 11 games for seven bucks. So a question to you. Um, since you were, uh, you worked very much in the music industry. What is the negative negativity behind like, services like spotify or pandora where you're getting all of these songs that at retail value their albums cost a good chunk of money but you're paying like nine bucks a month for millions of songs this feels very similar in Um, in its own world but like what's the negativity behind that and does that translate yes and no um you would probably more liken spotify to um the xbox game pass than you would to fanatical um Mm. because they are services that you pay into and then get access to a library whereas this is more like uh the humble bundle type thing the the only difference is that um i'm not sure what the split is for um how developers get paid with these bundles that is the downside you know um but as somebody Mm. who's trying to save money when when i buy games uh, i always go to fanatical green man gaming etc and find the best deal for myself um mm-hmm. yeah usually the, these and and believe, i'm not specifically familiar with fanatical but i know a lot of these gray markets um usually the way these work is that mm-hmm. the key has actually already been purchased these are not this is not a gray market site okay so don't use that terminology i, I want to point that out this is 100 percent developer partnerships oh okay so then there is a split with it the they are selling these in partnership with developer like humble does they are not gray market gotcha. they do not resell keys Okay, so in that case, then, yeah, there is actually a direct split to the developer. Nice. Yeah. Um, so I rescind my comment. Yeah, I, sorry, I, 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 wanted to, I wanted to clarify that because I, I get very upset with that. I, I talked to somebody else who was like, oh, mm-hmm. I, I never go onto those gray market sites. And I'm like, yeah, me either. But this isn't one. That's why I use it. Same with Green Man Gaming. Got those it. are mm-hmm. verified keys. They're partnerships with developers. This right. is a, it, yeah. 100% official. Okay, cool. Well, that's actually better than mm-hmm. yes. So that means that regardless of what the price that it is that you're paying, there is some type of uh, direct kickback to the developer. Right. I just don't know what that uh, like in a in terms of a 
11 game bundle mm-hmm. i mm-hmm. imagine if you're paying the seven dollars the games that are in the highest tier are the ones getting a majority of that money yeah. um it, or a, a majority of that split because mm-hmm. i imagine fanatical keeps a majority of the money but yeah i'm not uh, again i'm not full in on what the split is i do love that they are steam keys and that usually when you buy a bundle they give you a free five percent off your next order mm-hmm. coupon I, I think a future episode could definitely be discussing um, different platforms and the sales they do and the kind of uh, takeaway that devs get from those. Because I've mentioned before that Steam, Epic, and Itch.io all have very different percentages for how much they give, the, how much they take off the top. And I think, uh, well, I'm, I have to look back into it. I remember seeing 30% for Steam, maybe 15 to 18 for Epic, and like 10 or less for Itch. And I can't remember if that's what I think that's what they take away from it. Yeah, right. So, um, but there's there we could do more research on that. To answer your other question, though, really quick, um, mm-hmm. in regards to Spotify, uh, the way that streaming services work is they pay uh, a very very nominal fee because licensing was not defined in the online space as well as it was in physical mediums. Mm. Um, so they they pay a very nominal fee toward artists. Usually, if you're a famous artist. Uh, you'll make a, a you know a decent chunk from Spotify streams because you get so many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but for smaller artists, it's usually honestly not beneficial to your wallet to be on these streaming platforms. But it is beneficial for your exposure, and that's mm-hmm. like that's how Spotify like gears it is like well without us Exposure. you know you're expecting people to yeah well yeah you're you're expecting people to go out and search for your music whereas we'll now curate your music into similar playlists mm-hmm. um even though again it doesn't it works like that in theory it doesn't really work like that and this is the same type of thing i mm-hmm. assume is like a lot of these indie games that are on especially fanatical like i've never heard of personally i've never heard of rec center tycoon out mm-hmm. of the box I have heard of Tesla V Lovecraft. Um, then a lot of the games in this mid tier, I just mm-hmm. cl- like glossed over, didn't read them by name because I don't know any of them by name. Um, so it is, in my opinion, more of an exposure thing than it is uh, an actual monetary gain for those companies in hopes of either the developer slash publisher getting um, more traffic mm-hmm. in the future or um, at the very least uh, trying to create a franchise with a foundation of like let's say oh this is moonlighter well when we release moonlighter 2 we've now captured these people who got moonlighter for really cheap mm-hmm. nice yeah thank you dave um that that's all i got yeah <laughs> it was a good chunk uh so moving on beans tell us about your news yeah, so I'm going to give an update to the um, sequel? Epic Games versus... Yeah, well, in this case, I think it's the trilogy. I, I'm actually going to rename this section. So so we're going to call this, for any future updates, um, Billionaire Baby's First Lawsuit. Ah. That's the new running, the new running segment uh, on QWERTYcast. So basically, just to kind of catch you up and give you a quick overview of what has happened. Um, so Epic Games generated a store system that was designed to subvert uh, purchases away from Apple's platform so that you could then make in-game purchases without having uh, to split those funds directly with Apple. Um, Apple didn't like that because their whole business model is we put you on our store, we take a cut of the cash. And so uh, they removed Epic uh, from their store. They removed Fortnite in particular, which is their major moneymaker. Um, and they even threatened to um, take away Epic's um, 
account so that they wouldn't be able to make updates on their um, Unreal Engine, which would have huge, you know, uh, conflicts for any games that are being developed using that system with the expectation of being rolled out onto Apple's platforms. So where we are right now, the court case in itself is supposed to be run uh, in July. So we'll have like the big, huge, like meat of it um, in uh, the beginning of July. But there has been some major developments specifically um, for some reason, in order for Apple to make their court case, they have decided that they need information from Valve um, so that they can use uh, this data that they're requesting as a precedent for why Apple's platform works the way it works. And so a California court actually agreed with Apple and has ordered Valve to provide data analytics on over 400 video games. Um, and they have what this is, to do, right? I know. And, and it's unfortunate because there, there's a lot of things that are going on right now that really kind of from any outsider who understands this even slightly, it's kind of sketchy, but Apple's basically asking for aggregated data associated with over 400 titles where they want to know how many of um, copies were sold on steam what the total evaluation of those games ended up being over time um they it's it's just a huge chunk of information that in my mind although apple is able to kind of say this is tangential to our argument and we need it for precedence purposes it's way too much it's almost like apple saying we want your entire business model and strategy and we need to know every single point of data for you because of this lawsuit we promise we won't use this information for any other purpose despite the fact that we are a directly competing platform but we just need it so that we can fight epic over here um don't worry about anything else that we might do with this information yeah. so <laughs> also what does what does steam have to do with epic because this is a fortnite thing which is not mm-hmm. a steam game it's it's on epic yeah platform so it's a really loose argument and i'm sure that there was a huge amount of legalese and very detailed information but basically what they're saying (laughs) basically what they're saying is that valve as a game developer puts their games up on the steam platform and we all know that there is a direct you know steam and valve same thing (laughs) Um, but because of the way that they're claiming that the financial side of things is reported um, that this is a direct correlation to epic putting their games on apple's platform so they want to use whatever that financial contribution is so how much money the valve per you know part of the company makes off of their games being sold on the steam part of the company and they want to use that to say this is why we make it so that when you put a game on the apple platform you make this much money and we make this much money so even though valve and steve are ba- steam are basically cutting themselves a check um it is technically two separate entities so the the thing here um, that I would then counter with would be Path of Exile, right? Well, hey, this is a free-to-play game, and then when you go into the game, you use the Path of Exile store to buy your currency and to buy your stuff. So that that's that's like where I would, as Epic, be like, all right, they can provide this information to you, but they have to provide the information specifically based around free-to-play games, mm-hmm. not around like these just single-purchase games, because that's a completely different topic. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that we can point to to say, like, what the hell? And the part that I find fascinating is in the small, like, uh, movie that's playing in my brain, there's this one character who's been sitting in this corner that's, like, all the way on the other side of the building, and his name is Valve. And he's been quietly watching as this whole thing takes place and kind of chuckling to himself. And then all of a sudden, a California court judge says, hey, you in the corner, uh, you need to reveal every single aspect of your company's financial history so that we can actually have a discussion. And he's just like... What? what you you can see <laughs> me? <laughs> um, so it's really fascinating, and and we'll see how it stands up. If I was Valve, and I'm sure this is the case right now, mm. they are fighting tooth and nail because, you know, that's the lifeblood of business, especially when you're talking about handing over information to a direct competitor. I know that it is slightly different. We're talking about the mobile market versus the PC desktop market. But there is a tie between those two markets. There is a share of the you know consumers that takes place on the line between those two platforms. And so to basically say, you know, give me everything that you have so that I can make a, a fight here, and to make that you know um, a court order mm. that says you have to give us this information. I just feel like somewhere in this there was the tech expert that was supposed to come on stage and say, you know, these are the things that are actually happening. Happening and this is the information you need to know that didn't happen mm -hmm. and so what we're doing is it's like the blind leading the blind and apple's getting away with it um well i don't no think surprise that a california court is gonna give <laughs> apple the yeah. benefit of the fucking doubt yeah. apple of all this companies is... the one that makes computers that nobody plays games on and like... also <laughs> like the one that is so protective over every aspect of their own hardware software development everything like they're the most protective company in in some ways it's been shown in a positive light like no we're not going to allow the police to unlock our fucking phones and yeah. then it's like but we want to see steam's entire business model to prove how <laughs> we should uh like how we deserve more money mm -hmm. yeah and you know and and this is one of those things where like uh, i I'm looking at this and I can make judgments and I can, and I can say my opinions on one side or the other. But in the end, we're talking about a company who makes a game called Fortnite, who in a single year nets $17 billion. And they are super, super sad. Tears are flowing because they're missing out on a few hundred million dollars of revenue from the smallest market share of their player base. Yeah. The Apple mobile platform. Mm. Like, it's they've decided that they to pick this fight. They also have the lawsuit against Google. You know, it's not they just... Do, okay, that. that's oh, true. yeah, yeah. But again, and it's also on the mobile platform, but I agree with you. And then Google's been handling this a little bit differently. But, but the part that kills me is... Epic's whole argument is we don't want money, we don't want damages, we just want to have a conversation about the developer's fees. And that puts them in this white knight situation, and the issue is that I think that the entire argument is disingenuous, because mm. by saying I don't want anything out of this, but I want to have a discussion where you're going to lower your cut, is an immediate benefit to my wallet. So right. you can't have it both ways. Mm. So, you know, it's it's this company that's making more money than any of us can even fathom that we'll ever see in our lifetimes that our entire generation of our families will never probably actually have. And it's sad to think about, but these guys are so upset 
that there's a percentage difference between the amount of money that they make when it goes through your credit card bank or when it goes through my credit card mm. bank and that that leads to you know rise itself to the level of a court case that now is asking a completely different company for all of their financial information in order to try and make heads or tails of this it's baffling i don't understand it I will never be able to put my finger on how these multi-billion dollar companies are able to just like laze, just like, hey, um, sue you, you know? <laughs> the answer that you're looking for is money. Yeah. yeah. That's, 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 we that's just how don't have do like the perspective to understand how like millions mean to somebody when I'm never going to have like a million dollars. Like, Well, it doesn't mean anything to them. That's that's the whole point is, yeah. is right. it literally it's a doesn't mean anything to them. It's But they it's have the that's money less. to just prove a point, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, and that's all yeah, I it think is for them. If, if we can convince all the 12-year-olds that are using their parents' credit cards to buy skins in the game of Fortnite uh-huh. to recognize that um, our, you know, education is more valuable, we're done. Like, yeah. like education is free, you know? Yeah. <laughs> like, Absolutely. It's just, just Educate it's just people through crazy. video games. They're already doing uh, it. it. It's just it, it and and for me to report on this and I know that it's important and it is going to have especially for the purposes of the types of conversations that we have in QWERTYcast this may end up being you know a historical landmark court case mm-hmm. for indie developers and so it is very important for anybody yeah for anybody who's who's out there who's trying to develop games who's considering putting it on the mobile market I do not detract from the you know huge leverage that this is going to have for you in the future and i respect that and that's why i want to talk about it but also fuck all of these companies <laughs> but it's the, the worst part is it's not uh like it could go the opposite way it's um it always reminds it me be worse. of the um girl talk issue uh for mm. those of you who don't know girl talk big uh performance type thing where they you know take the very popular songs of various genres and generations and they mash them up and they make their own piece which arguably could be considered their own work of art or arguably could be outright theft um and the the essential thing is most companies don't want to and like most um businesses don't want to like sue on Mm. the grounds that like uh, if the court rules in the favor of the person who's making these mashups, we are fucked as businesses. And so it's mm. bizarre to me that Apple or that Epic was willing to go forth on this over like a few million dollars to make mm. a point that will have implications that will ripple through the rest of game development uh, indefinitely because it can be yeah. overturned at some point in time. Mm-hmm. But the chances of it being overturned are pretty tough. I mean, they- yeah, this is a risk reward kind of mm-hmm. thing. And I think that um, my concern is just based on the very limited understanding that I have of the legal system. If at any point this starts to look like it's not going to work out in Apple's favor, I imagine that you're going to immediately see some type of deal form yes. in order to avoid the potential fallout that you would have in the status quo of the current developer and platform, you know, contract. But even so, still, if it's not going to work out in Apple's favor, that has heavy implications for the market in the future of game development. Oh yeah. Um, so it, it yeah. doesn't matter at this point. They've they've already gone past. They've opened Pandora's box essentially. They've gone past yeah. the point of no return. No matter what happens now, 
it has major implications for game development and it has major implications for developers who don't have millions, billions, trillions of dollars to just throw at people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the, in that context, in that perspective, I, I'm happy that this is happening as long as it ends up, you know, rolling out the way that I'm hoping. But it always seems to be in cases like this when you've got multi-billion dollar industries <clears throat> that the little man's going to end up somehow mm-hmm. taking the shaft. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, this has to this has to end up with Epic winning one way or another because they still do own the major competing PC game platform right now. And oh yeah, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so it's like there. Wait, so like, like the whole thing's happening with Valve. Does that mean that like Epic is gonna pull some shit to? grab that data that apple's getting from valve so that they can know what valve is doing to make their there's certainly their lawyers that have access to it to build the case yeah more than likely what they're trying to do is they're trying to point to hypocrisy Mm -hmm. on epic side because their their system is designed similarly to valve and steam where they have their own platform to provide their own game but it's odd because we have this whole this mobile structure i mean are we going to see epic uh develop a new phone os in the future who knows? Very unlikely. No, uh, <laughs> they might. Honestly, I would see them do it before Steam. But yeah, it's it's got huge implications. We're definitely going to be following this closely. As soon as some type of judgment occurs that actually makes like a, a huge effect on the current contract mm-hmm. system for developers, uh, be assured that we're going to talk about it immediately. Maybe we should do like a uh, live the, stream for that. The funny thing to me with uh, Apple asking for this information from Valve is that Valve is more akin to Google, and so is Epic hmm. uh, in, in terms of the Play Store, where you do sell it on this platform, but this platform is not how you launch it. And that's, that's essentially, from what I'm reading, it, the intricacy of this is that Apple claims that, well, you're launching it through us. It's, it's tied to us the whole way through, and that's yeah, why you and, owe us money. And something to point out, that that concept is unique to apple because apple wants it that way so that this argument can occur in the first place yeah so it is important to point out that apple has such a lock on their own store that they force these types of contracts to occur and that's i think what epic's really trying to get at from a root is that all these other companies are saying you know we have this platform here's what we want from you but otherwise have at it and apple says here's our platform we're very particular about what happens here you are going to have no control but will at least have you there so you get exposure mm. right. uh, it's that kind of God, thing and and it's it's yeah. like it's important to even see like look at rainbow six right like mm-hmm. um i can launch that off of steam and what that does is it launches off of steam to throw me to the uplay launcher and then it launches off of uplay which is why valve's information is completely irrelevant because mm-hmm. they already don't do what apple does and it's same thing with the epic game store epic doesn't have that hypocrisy because you could buy a game that launches through ea because it's an ea game and you bought it through epic so you had to pay epic initially um so they get a cut of it but then it takes you to EA and you're no longer tied into Epic in any way. Just and like, in doesn't the fact this, that that's where your license lies. Doesn't the same yeah. thing happen with GOG? Like yeah. you can merge all of your libraries and just launch Steam games through GOG, which probably launches it through something else. Right. And that's yeah. even that's even more of an intric- 
intricacy because you bought it through Steam. GOG mm -hmm. has absolutely nothing to do with it other than the fact that they're like, hey, we recognize that you own this game. Just use us and like we'll launch it for you. And that's yeah. just to get people to use their platform in hopes of them buying more stuff through GOG, which mm. will never happen yeah. because you yeah. can get better <laughs> deals on Steam. Yeah. So in, in the end, you know, we're, we're going to keep watching this closely. Um, mm -hmm. But as of right now, it seems to be getting more and more convoluted. So uh, keep uh, listening yeah. in and we'll let you know what happens. Yeah. And listen to episode 20 where we first talked about this, if, if that's your thing. <laughs> um, so, the confidence immediately fades. Yeah, right. It's like, and eh, nobody needs to listen, though. It's okay. I love myself enough. Um, thank you, guys. I actually, I feel like this was a great conversation. I'm so glad I brought uh, this topic up today. This, uh, like, we had a really good discourse on it. I really hope people are interested enough to challenge that discourse or even bring more information to it. If you want to talk more about this kind of thing, we have plenty of channels in our Discord that you can find through QWERTYCAST.com, like Indie Hype Channel, uh, um, that we just literally talk about indie games that we're hype about. The general voice the general text channel you can even talk about this kind of thing um but we really want to invite people to you know give us their feedback on the discussions we have and maybe even what kind of discussions you want us to have in the future should we do an episode on metroidvania should we do an episode on you know developer cuts in every platform what do you want to hear because that's what matters to us I am going to say that we should close out the episode and make the About Us a nice little post show. So if you're interested more in who we are as people and kind of what we're up to, uh, listen to the About Us. That's going to be posted probably on Patreon, maybe somewhere else. We'll see. We'll, po we'll post about we're, that we're too. We're working on it. Exactly. <laughs> but we're making beta. content that people get in beta, right? Uh, we're making content that we just want people to be interested in listening to. So let us know your thoughts. In the meantime, we are QWERTYCAST. This was a great episode on roguelikes and the definition. And we enjoyed having you. Any Wink other thoughts? to be audio friendly. <laughs> Wink. <laughs> All right. Well, in that note, QWERTYCAST out. QWERTYCAST out. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon subscribers, our QWERTYcast hosts, our audio engineer musical master, Gary, and you, our listeners. If you'd like to join our community, find us through QWERTYcast.com, which has links to all of our platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, Patreon, Discord, and more. On behalf of everyone here at QWERTYcast, thanks for listening. This is Beans saying QWERTYcast out.